If you're able, stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read Mark 10, 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The word of God for the people of God. Seated. glad you're here today. We're continuing our journey through the gospel according to Mark, and we're in chapter 10. This might be a familiar story. It might not be, but this is generally called the rich young ruler, the story about a man with great wealth who asked Jesus a question, a very important question, about eternal life. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God to him and to his disciples. And they're astonished by all this. And they end up with this question, then who can be saved? So something's happening here that we want to look at today and kind of ask that question. That's the wonder here, who can be saved? And that's what I ended up titling it. It's... It's that because of the question about eternal life, Jesus talking about entering the kingdom of God in two different portions of this scripture, ending with this portion of text that says, who can then be saved? So it's talking about salvation. We want to look at that. How can I inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? And we want to look at what the obstacle here is. Uh, for this young man and for possibly ourselves. What are the obstacles that get in the way for this? We will look at the obstacle of wealth. Our scripture began in Mark 10, 17, and it said, 
as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark 10, 17. Our text begins. This is a unique situation in that it isn't the scribes and the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus. We've had a lot of those questions, right, um, in the Gospels and in our journey so far through the Gospel of Mark. It's not that. Uh, this man actually runs to meet Jesus. You know, Peter would have, through the eyewitness testimony of Peter that Mark is recording, you know, would have noticed that, brings that out, that this man, different than Matthew and, and uh, Luke bring out, you know, Peter emphasizes this, as a man runs up to meet Jesus and kneels before Jesus. So this looks like kind of a, an urgent situation, an interrupting situation where this man is eager, he runs up, the scripture says, he kneels before Jesus, he gives him this title of honor of, of rabbi, not just rabbi, but good rabbi, good teacher. He calls Jesus good. He's falling at his feet. Now, to call Jesus good for us is not a problem, but Jesus confronts this man, first of all, about calling him good. You know, the fact that God is good means that there's no evil in him at all. His intentions, God's intentions and motivations are always good all the time. There's this perfection about the word good in the Bible that we don't have, just like our understanding of what love is. We use that word randomly. So do we use the word good quite randomly. The Bible doesn't. The Bible is uh, refers to good as this perfection of God, that God is good. And so Jesus is confronting him right off the bat with this, right in the beginning of this conversation. But God is always good, and he's always doing what is right. The outcome of God's plans are always good. Psalms 105 says, for the Lord is good. I mean, it's just a description of who he is. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. See, God is good. God alone is good. Psalm 145, 16 through 17 says, You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's good in all his ways. He is right in all his ways. He is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. This is God. God is good. You only call God good. Why are you? Jesus asked this man a question. Why do you call me good? You see, this man doesn't understand who he's speaking to. The, the scriptures say that God is good and he alone is good and no one else is. The New Testament proves this out in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one does good. Not even one. The Bible puts humanity under, and God's word puts humanity under 
this saying that there is no one good. See, God alone is good. But Jesus isn't specifically saying here, like some people say, well, Jesus isn't claiming to be good here. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying that he's not good. He's not saying even that he is not God. But he is questioning this man. Why are you calling me good? You should only be calling God good. So he is questioning him. He is laying this question right out at the beginning. Who do you think you're talking to? You don't, you don't know who. Who are you calling good? You don't know that I'm the son of God. You don't know that before Abraham was, I am the I am. You don't know these things. Who do you think you're talking to? Why are you calling me good? Now, there's, because there's different things when people did speak the truth, like earlier we looked at in Mark when Peter said, you know, you are the Christ. When he had that revelation and, and you know, Jesus acknowledges that there. Jesus blesses Peter. He notices that Peter knows. He knows, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus acknowledges that. You know what you're saying, and I know that doesn't come from flesh and blood. You know, the, the Holy Spirit's revealing, the Father is revealing to you, so blessed are you. He doesn't do that with this man. He doesn't go, Blessed are you, young uh, man, you know that I'm good. He doesn't, because he doesn't know, and he's not doing that. And it's good to establish that right off the bat, that this person is throwing himself down, he's calling him good teacher, but he doesn't really know what. He's using that word carelessly. Good. But he goes on to tell him, you know what to do. Keep the commandments, Mark 10, 19 through 20. You know the commandments, so he knows something about this young man. Uh, Luke brings out that he's a ruler. It's brought out that he's wealthy in all three of the Gospels, the stories told. A ruler, a ruler of what? doesn't say exactly, but most Jewish men, Hebrews, their ruler would have been a ruler of a synagogue. They were very you know, steeped in understanding. They were more like administrators of the church. They didn't necessarily preach and teach and do all that. The rabbis did that, but synagogue rulers that helped build, administrate, keep everything going, organized. They were there every day. They kept the functions of the synagogue don't, going. It's most likely he would have been that type of ruler, but he was a ruler, a man of authority, a man of position, Luke brings out. But Jesus doesn't debate with him regardless of what he was, who he was, what kind of ruler, how rich, how wealthy, how all of this was. Jesus doesn't get into a debate with him over whether or not he has kept the commandments of not or not. When this young man says, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth, he doesn't argue with him, he doesn't call him out, he doesn't say, you're a liar, you have not. He doesn't do that. Jesus is looking at this young man, uh, and he's like, keeping the commandments is always a good place to start if you want to experience true life and real blessings in life. Jesus is saying, if you want life, he had asked the question about eternal life. Now, most of us think when we hear a question about eternal life, we think of the future. We think of you know, pie in the sky when I die, eternal life, something that is eternal. But eternal life in the scriptures 
means life now. It means life now and forevermore. So eternal life isn't just about asking about something for the future. See, this young man knows he's missing something now. He's asking a question about lacking something now in this life. How can I keep these commandments? Why am I not entering into life? Why am I not experiencing life now? Why am I not experiencing eternal life, the living life of the eternal God, now in my life and forevermore? See, this is the debate here is about eternal life, and that is life now. And so he's keeping the commandments. Jesus says, keep the commandments. That's how you enter into the kingdom. That's how you enter into life. If you want life now, keep the commandments. Keeping the commandments will bring you life. Jesus established them through God, through Noah, you know, through the Father. He was instrumental in bringing that to give us life. But life cannot be purchased by you doing those commandments. And so... The scriptures say, even though Jesus said, if you would enter life, like a good place to begin, if you would enter life, this is what he says in Matthew 19, verse 17, if you would enter life, rich young ruler man, keep the commandments. So it's a good place to enter. It's a good place to begin. It's a good starting point. Jesus just lays that out for him. But the scripture teaches very clearly, our liturgy today was very clear in that the law and keeping of the law and any attempts at our own self-salvation cannot save us. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So first of all, we want to see that by the works of law, by keeping the commandments, you will never please God that way ultimately. No human being will ever stand justified before God saying, I am justified in keeping the commandments. I have kept the commandments, and therefore I will be justified. No one, no flesh, no human being, no one ever will reach that point. In fact, what Romans 3.20 says is since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, actually even attempting to, which is a good thing, to keep the commandments, it will bring you to the end of yourself. Galatians 3.21 says, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, it was possible that the law could give life and keeping the law could bring life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Galatians explains that it's not. And it explains that the law was our guardian, that it was our tutor until Christ came, Galatians 3.24, that we might be justified by faith. Justification always comes, this church preaches, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And it is revealed through the Holy Scriptures alone. This is what we teach and preach over and over again. So this man and Jesus is saying, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, that's a good place. Why? Because they'll bring you to the end of yourself. Why? Because they will give you a knowledge of your sin. Why? Because they will be your guardian and tutor and lead you to faith in Jesus. Can somebody say amen? That's what the purpose of the commandments are. It's a good starting point. Uh, it's a good place to bring the knowledge of sin in your life. And it's a good place to tutor you to faith in Christ. This man knows that. He knows this. He knows that something is still missing in his life. He speaks that out. 
He says, I'm still lacking something. Jesus just says, you lack one thing. In uh, Matthew, he says, I've kept all these since my youth. What is it that I lack? And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Mark just skips that and goes to the point and says, Jesus says, you lack one thing. You still lack something. Matthew brings out that the young man understood that. He said, I've done those. I've kept those since my youth. I'm, I'm doing that. There's something still missing in my life. What do I lack? And Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, I'm going to tell him the next step from keeping the commandments. I'm going to tell him this tutoring to me, you know, bringing him to the end of himself, bringing him to the knowledge of his sin, tutoring towards me. I'm going to, I'm going to explain that to him, son. So he says, I'll tell you what you lack. Matthew 19, 20, the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? That's Matthew's version. I've kept the commandments. They've brought the blessing of God in my life. They've brought the favor of God in my life. I'm young, I'm rich, I'm probably most likely good looking too. You know how it all comes. <laughs> these blessed people. Luke mentions he was a ruler, he's in authority, he's in a position of leadership. He seems to have it all, but he's running up in a desperation, falling at the feet of Jesus. And what Jesus says isn't, isn't satisfying just to keep the commandments. He, I've done that. Something's still missing. What do I still lack? St. Augustine was a, a man like this. He was born in northern Africa in 354. And despite being raised by a devoted Christian mother, he was a difficult child. He grew up to be an atheist, but he's highly intelligent. He was a scholar. He was able to, with uh, his means and others helping, receive one of the finest educations available in that day. And, and he founded a school in Rome, a school of rhetoric in 383. So before he's even 30 years old, about the age of Jesus with this rich young ruler at this time, He's already founding a school. He's just not in school and a brilliant scholar. His wealth was in his education. His wealth was in his mind. His wealth was in his superior intellect and education. And yet Augustine too knew that he lacked something. And when he found Christ and he found salvation, Augustine's quote, most famous quote is, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. He knew that. He was restless, restless young man, restless with all his education, restless with founding schools, restless with all that he knew. He was restless in his chasing and, and, and living in a, a a sensuous lifestyle. He had, had had all these things and yet all these pleasures that life could bring and yet he was restless till he found his rest. And this is this young rich ruler that's in front of Jesus. He's restless. There's something in him that is still lacking. And in Mark 10, 21 through 22, it says, and Jesus looking at him loved him. Can you imagine that? I I can't imagine, like, how's Mark writing this? Did Peter see this? Did Peter say Mark, he looked at him and loved him? This is unique in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus does have compassion at times. He looks over 
Jerusalem and weeps at one time. He does look at people on compassion a few different times and says he, he looks at all the people and says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And, and you could just see this in Jesus, this compassion. But it's unique in all of the Gospels that Jesus looked at one man, at one person, it says, and he says he looked at him and loved him. I wonder what the expression was on his face. I wonder how Peter, like, you know, saw that and described it to Mark. He looked at him and loved him. What, what could you see in his eyes when he just looked at him and he said that he loved him? He looked at him and he loved him. Wow. I don't know, that just stirs my imagination. He looked at him and he loved him. He, he's going to speak the truth, but he's going to speak it in love. It's like his love is going to cause him to say this. The love of Jesus Christ being poured out on this rich young man. He has compassion for him, this love. He looks out and he loves him. And this is what he says. You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. That's the invitation. And all the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, to this rich young man. And it says that the young man was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful. Some use the word sad. Some use the word grieved. It is a deep word of grief. He doesn't leave fighting with them. What do you mean? He doesn't leave with any of these. He doesn't leave with anger. He doesn't leave with all these things. He leaves sad. He leaves sorrowful. He leaves grieved with this answer that Jesus has given to him. What must he do to inherit eternal life? What is the one thing he still lacks? Jesus looks around and he sees this young man and he sees what he is lacking and he speaks directly to that point. I want to just look at these attitudes that Jesus brings up about money our attitudes towards money, our attitudes towards wealth. Mark 10, 23 through 27 says, Jesus looked around and said to the disciples. He looked around and then said to his disciples. So the focus is off of the rich young ruler onto his disciples. And he looks at them and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Just another way for having eternal life. These are all terms. Who can be saved? Entering the kingdom of God, eternal life. How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And in our text in verse 24 of Mark chapter 10, he said, And the disciples were amazed at his words. We want to look at that. Why were they amazed at those words? So they were so amazed, Jesus says it to them again. He said, And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's just how difficult it is to enter. It's a little broader term, but then he focuses it back on wealth. In verse 25, and he says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. So now they're just amazed. He says it again and brings that impossibility even to a higher level, and it says they are exceedingly astonished and said to him, here's the title of our sermon, then who can be saved? 
Now, interesting, this is their attitude towards wealth. You would have to get in and understand the disciples' attitude towards wealth at this time in their culture. Now, in verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. Okay, so what I said is true. It is impossible. That's what he was saying. I go through the camel, biggest animal you can think of, you guys. What's the biggest one? Of course, we can think of elephants, but for them, camel. Camel, biggest animal you can think of. What's the tiniest little hole you can think of? I have a sewing needle. It would be easier. He's comparing these two things. That's how impossible it is. But when they're exceeding astonished, he says, with man, when they, when they ask who can be saved, he says, with man it is impossible. That's what I'm bringing up. That's the whole emphasis. Bring you to the end of yourself. Bring you to the end of the impossibility of saving yourself. It is impossible for you to even enter into the kingdom by yourself, by your own efforts, through any keeping of the commandments, everything. He's saying that. He's bringing them to that. With man it is impossible, but not with God. Not with God. See, you're going to need God. For all things, and remember this young man didn't know Jesus was God. He didn't. For all things are possible with God. Jesus looked around, it says. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples. Luke brings out in his explanation of the rich young ruler. In Luke, it's in chapter 18. And in verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said. So Jesus sees the, when he says, sell all you have, give it to the poor, Luke brings out that detail that Jesus sees those slumped shoulders, the sadness of him walking away, the sorrowfulness, the grievingness. It says Jesus, Luke brings out that detail in verse 24, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those. So it's like he sees the young man sad and he turns to the disciples and says, look at that. Look at what I just said. And they don't get it, so he has to say it over and over again to them in different ways and even bring up this analogy of, of a camel going through the eye of a needle, how difficult it is for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus saw the rich young ruler's response. He saw him become sad, sorrowful, and grieved as Jesus had exposed the idol of his heart. He had exposed the one thing that he lacked. He had pinpointed it and nailed it on the head. He had answered his tr question in perfect love and in perfect truth, and this man could still not do it. He turned away and left sad. His money, his wealth, his lands and possessions were his supreme love, and Jesus put his little finger on it and told him, He wanted life. He knew he was lacking something. He knew all of his admiration of his rulership as well. But what is the attitude that the disciples have? What's our attitude towards money today? Is money just money to you? Now, for the disciples, they had a certain way of looking at money. They looked at it as a, a blessing in life. So that's why they're astonished our look at money today what is this money are we like this rich young ruler has money got a hold of us or is money just something to be used you know and and doesn't have that power over us like it did with this rich young ruler what's our attitude towards money how do you know if money is not just money to you or if you're really because that's a deceptive thing 
you know, well, I'm okay with money. You know, yeah, it doesn't have me. I, I, you know, but what are some signs that might mean that we love money, that we, money is our supreme love, our supreme security, our security not in God. It's actually in this. That's what it was for this young man. One thing is if you love money, it's an idol in your life. You usually don't give it away regularly. That's one thing. And you've never given large amounts of it away, large amounts to where it put you in crisis. You might want to look at that. Money might have a hold of you if you're scared when you don't have as much as you are accustomed to. Like, I'm getting scared. I'm worried. I usually have this much and that much in the bank. I'm a little bit panicky. You might think that money is an idol in your life. Anytime a person uses money as a scorecard, a measuring stick of how they are in comparison to others, like, well, I'm up here right now, and these people are down here. I'm kind of here. I'm moving up here and there. When you ever use money as a scorecard, you're looking at money as where you're at in comparison to others. You might have a love for money. Anytime money is your identity, anytime money is the essence and meaning, main meaning in your existence, you have and might know that you have a problem with money, that money owns you. You don't own money. But these attitudes of money for the disciples are just astonished, you know. I would think, like, poor fishermen, you know, and saying, hey, this rich guy that's got it all and he looks good, he's got, I'm glad he's not in the kingdom. You know, I'm glad, does that mean we have a chance, us poor fishermen, you know? That's kind of how people would think today, right? Oh, good, I'm glad the rich don't get in because, you know, we're poor and we're hardworking and we're, like, here, we get in, the rich don't, you know. But they don't. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're looking at this rich young ruler, possibly synagogue ruler, religious, keeping the commandments, receiving the blessings of God. He's in the kingdom. If he isn't in the kingdom, no one's in the kingdom. What are you talking about, Jesus? If that guy isn't receiving the blessings of God, then who is? This is their response. They're astonished. They're amazed. They're exceedingly astonished when he says it's hard for them because they're like, that just means the blessing of God is on him. This is what the law had said. This is what the promise of keeping the law had said in Deuteronomy 28. It said, you know, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, that's what this man had said, that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, above all others, and these blessings will come upon you. And for verse after verse after verse, God just pours out, if you keep the commandments, you follow me, you're going to receive all these. And all of them had to do with wealth and rulership. And all of these blessings. I'll, verse 12, the Lord will open to you. His good treasury from the heavens will pour out to you. He'll bless all the work of your hands. Everything you touch is just like good. That's what had happened in this person's life. They're looking at this guy. He's fulfilled. He's keeping. He's, do, he's doing all this. Who can be saved? If this guy isn't saved, who can be? This is their astonishment. This is how they see wealth. This is in their culture. This is in their upbringing. This is who is blessed. Abraham was blessed. He was the great patriarch, rich with animals. Every place he went, he could give Lot the best lands, fertile lands, and go into the desert and be blessed in his animals multiply. That's blessing. That's entering into the kingdom. He's in the kingdom. Job is in the kingdom. Everything he touches, he's the wealthiest man in the land. He's blessed. Even in the New Testament, in Macedonia, in the church at Philippi, 
Lydia, a seller of purple. You had to be a good businesswoman and in, 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 in some form of wealth. It was the wealthiest dye fabric. You had to be, and she blesses the Apostle Paul. She gets saved, and the Macedonian church is the one that just pours out their support and wealth and blessing out of her wealth into the Apostle Paul's ministry. There's wealthy people, and they're blessed from God. These people are in the kingdom. What's our attitude about money? Is it a sign of virtue, of something good we have done? People are blessed and rich because they've done something right and good and they've planned well and they have God's favor on their life? Could be. It is a lot. But what Jesus is saying is not always. It's not that simple. There's never these real black and white clear answers in the scriptures. But I asked some young people this week about the people that went down to see the Titanic. I'm talking about 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds. And I said, well, did you guys hear about that? What do you guys think? And they immediately went into this. Well, and a lot of people did, and even on media and social media, and these jokes about them, these rich people, these billionaires with nothing else to do, they die. There was almost no compassion for them. And in fact, it was like, well, they just got billions and they had nothing else to do with their billions than to go on these exploratory things and they died and kind of like, so what? And the attitude of wealth mostly today is to gain wealth, you have to do it through greed, exploitative means. You, you've gotten rich off the backs of others, off of, and, and some people do. But is it that simplistic? Are people either wealthy because of their virtue and their goodness and their hard work and, and their blessings of God, or are they wealthy because they're exploitative? My, my oldest son is an economist, and he's seen a lot of explo- exploitative ways that people get really wealthy, like if you want to really get wealthy, a lot of exploitation. So people have seen that son. My dad was real young when his dad died and he became basically the man of his house uh, when he was nine years old and my grandmother went to him and said you know dad's died you're now the man of the house you have to make the deals with people you have to go shake their hand you have to make for the rental of our house that we're in everything so my dad grew up fast and he found this mentor in his life a fairly well-off businessman in their town of Ponca City Oklahoma uh, and he ran a furniture and business store, and he was kind to him. He taught him and he mentored him how to work hard and run a business. And my dad went to college uh, at Oklahoma University and got a business degree and became a businessman just like him. And he wanted to go to an oil refinery town and he moved to Artesia, New Mexico, where there was some you know wealthier people who could buy real nice furniture and home products. And he started a business in 1948, and it grew, and he grew his um wealth to raise 12 kids, you know, enough to do that. Uh, he just, just told uh, my mom, if we can afford them, you know, we lived through the Depression, so uh, we, can, we can survive this, and they did. So my dad had an attitude towards wealth like that, like, you work hard, you're blessed, you, you, you're, you have God's favor on your life because you're doing the right thing in the right way. But his younger brother, my uncle Herbie, had a different experience. He went to work for a wealthy man, and after 
about, uh, you know, a couple of weeks. He said, when are you going to pay me? And he said, I'll pay you at the end of the month. And this guy was very wealthy, had a ton of money, was one of the wealthiest guys in town. And he said, come to me and work again. I mean, just keep working through the summer, you know. No, I'm not going to pay you at the end of this month. I'll pay you when you're completely through. It'll be like you're saving it up and you're just saving all your money all summer. That way you won't spend it. And he goes, all right, I'll just keep working for you. So he works the second month, works his whole third month, just pouring out his life. And, this guy, and he comes to him at the end of the summer before school's going to start up again in high school. And he goes, I don't owe you nothing, man. Get out. I ain't paying you a dime. So my uncle Herbie's view was really in complete opposite to my brother's view. My brother's view is wealth is attained through this, through blessing and hard work. And this mentor that's great in my life is a wealthier person. And then my uncle Herbie was, rich people get rich because they exploit you. They use you and throw you out like trash and they won't even pay you. And, then, and he always had that view in his life. Watch out for wealth dangerous. People get wealthy through exploitative means. And these are basically these two ideas, but the disciples had the one that you work hard, the virtue of God, the blessing of God, you've kept the commandments, God's blessing, and they saw poverty as the curse. You're disobedient, you're doing something wrong. That's what Job's friends had. Hey, you must have done something wrong. You know, all this blessing's being taken away from you. These are the two overly simplistic attitudes that do not define all of the different situations. But the main thing that Jesus brings out is that he does give a big warning about wealth. He does give a warning about wealth keeping you from the kingdom of God, from even entering, just like this rich young ruler. Like having it and depending on it can be something that keeps you from God rather than rejoicing in God and his blessings in your life. See, we get to the point that we think we have earned that wealth. We have planned. We, our virtue has done that. Our keeping of the commandments, our whatever, we've done better than others, and that's why we're wealthy. We've put in more. We've worked harder. We're, not that we're just blessed from God, and God has given it to us. Out of his goodness, we start to think we are good. We have earned it in some way. But Jesus is not saying at the same time that it's a sin to be rich. He's not saying that rich people are all bad and poor people are all good. He's not saying that either. But Jesus is saying in some profound way that there's something radically wrong with all of us. And that money itself is a deep uh, warning sign and our love of it, a deep warning sign that something is deeply, radically wrong with us. And that money itself has a particular power to blind us. It has a particular power to depend on it. It's like oil and loot and soothe. It's like if you're poor, I remember hearing this growing up, and you, you, you have a lot of mental issues, you're called crazy. But if you're rich and you have all the same problems, you're called eccentric. It's like, because money covers over things. It has a way of lubing and oil and kind of able to, and then when we're, when we're desperate and in hard places, money has a way of soothing us and comforting us and keep us comfortable right where we're at. Money can be dangerous in keeping us in faith and trust in God. And it was that way with this man. He left sorrowful because he had great possessions. 
This is Jesus' warning in this. Is Jesus asking this rich young ruler to do something that Jesus himself is not willing to do? Don't you like that when someone says, ask you to do something? Are you willing to do it? Have you done it? Oh, you have. Okay. I'll go do it then. Is he asking him to do something that Jesus himself, and I would propose to you this morning that there's a man right before this rich young ruler that is much richer than this man has ever been in his entire life. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything that is God is his. He is the most, he, he takes Solomon and the, all of his riches and glory, and he's much greater in wealth than that. He's greater than the Gates and the Bezos and the Saudi of Arabia prince and everything they could ever imagine and own. He owns the wealth of all the earth and all that is in heaven. He owns the wealth of wisdom. He owns the wealth of all possessions, and he's right there before him. And you know what he has done? He has left them all. He has left heaven to come down and be a person without a home, without a stone to lay his head on, even for a pillow. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's left it all. I would propose to you today, there is a much richer, about the same age, maybe young, ruler of much more than this man could ever imagine ruling, and he's right before him, laying it all out, giving it all away. And Jesus is that rich young ruler, and he's not asking him to do anything that Jesus himself is not doing and will do at the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give it all away for you. He looks at him and loves him. I'm going to go into a deeper poverty than you can ever imagine on the cross. I'll be separated from the eternal wealth that I have with my Father before all of time and creation and trinity. I will be separated. I will go into a poverty that you cannot imagine of separation. I will cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I will go to the depths of poverty for you, rich young man. You can do it. I'm not asking you to do anything I won't do. Jesus will give it all away. Why? Because he looks at you and he loves you. Right where you are with the idols in your heart, they may not be money, they might be something else. Sex, romance, love, some other kind of thing. Maybe a good thing. Money's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not. It's neutral. And the good things you have in your life, if they are before God, and you love them more than God, they have become an idol. And he will look at you with love and ask you to give them away. And I can guarantee you Jesus has given more away. God shows his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to this out of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, think of the riches of Jesus. Think along with Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Remember Jesus? Remember his grace? Remember our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, and think of the richest rich, 
For your sake he became poor, that you, by your poverty, might become rich. And that's what he's asking us to do. Go out like Jesus. Nothing that he hasn't done already, he's asking us to do. Follow him. Be willing to become poor. Be willing to have yourself poured out to the end of yourself for the love of others. Be willing to preach Christ and him crucified and you boasting only in the cross of Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. Jesus uh, says in Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King, my power is always moving away from people who love power and money. And my power is always moving towards people who are giving it away as I did. Where do you want to live? Amen. I want to live with Jesus. I want to live with the needy who are generous and willing to give it away just like the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ did. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, when you come together, remember me in this meal. Remember my death. Remember the cross. Always remember your reliance on Jesus. We're going to come up and receive the bread and the fruit of the vine and then go back to our chairs and say a prayer and partake together and remember Jesus. Remember the rich young ruler who gave his all for us. Come.
gracious Heavenly Father. Say you send out your word and it will not return unto you void or empty, but will accomplish what you send it out to accomplish. We thank you for that, Lord. Let your word accomplish what you desire it to in all ways, in the hearts of your people to draw us in ever greater measures toward the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those who might not know you, draw them into a saving knowledge of you, God. As we come to, together now as believers who put our trust and faith in Jesus, let us partake of these elements together with faith, believing and trusting and relying on Jesus Christ and his work at the cross, his death and resurrection to eternal life, our hope and our only hope in life and death. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks for it. Thanks to the Father for the bread. He said, this is my body, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son. May your plan is good. We thank you for the beautiful plan of sending your one and only son to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves, your great salvation, to come into your kingdom, to enjoy the blessings that are rich and full in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the body of Jesus. In like manner, he took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, given for you for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it, and when you do, do this in remembrance of me, and remember my death until I come, until I come again, until I return. Do this. Let us partake of the cup together. Thank you, gracious Heavenly Father, for the mercy that is in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the grace that comes through the cross and his atoning death on the cross, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Thank you for that your Son would give up his lifeblood for us and spill it on that tree and become a curse for us that we might enjoy the blessing come through Christ and through faith in him. Thank you for the blood. We remember you, Jesus. We remember your death until you return. We thank you in Jesus' name. Anoint our hearts to worship you, Jesus, to make much of you and much of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.